Well, open your Bibles to Mark chapter 15. As you can see, we do have the Lord's table set in what a fitting way to conclude a passage about the burial of Jesus Christ. It will actually be our response to the sermon this morning, so let me say this to you up front. You do not need to be a member of Timberlake Baptist Church to participate in in communion in the Lord's table, but the Bible would say to you, you do need to be saved. You do need to be born again. Um, if not, you drink and eat damnation or judgment unto yourself because you're testifying of something that hasn't really happened yet. There's no magic in the wafer or in the juice. There's no grace that's going to come to you through it. It's actually a symbol. It's, a, it's an external symbol of what has already taken place a long time ago and that you have received, which is the, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. He, he laid down his, his life for you, the body that was prepared for him in the incarnation, and he shed his blood for for the forgiveness of, of sin. So, partake and partake freely, uh, those of you who know, know Christ. And the Bible is, is really all about this story, isn't it? Jesus Himself said on three separate occasions, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the, by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And we've been walking through the Gospel of Mark, and everything has unfolded exactly the way that, that Jesus predicted. Christ was betrayed by one of His own, that was Judas. He was rejected by the leaders of Israel. He was deserted by His, his disciples. They, the, the shepherd was, was struck and the, and, and the sheep scattered. We, we observed Him being delivered into the hands of the Gentiles, being Pilate. We... We witness the unjust condemnation, uh, no corroborating testimony, lies. What he was actually convicted of was true. He was the Son of God. We, we're going to see him rise again on the third day, but today we're, we're going to see something else that, that, that he foretold. In Matthew chapter 12, verse 40, Jesus said, the only sign that would be given to this wicked generation is one that they wouldn't believe. They ask for a sign when He's on the cross, come down and, and we'll believe. Jesus says the only sign that you're going to, to get is one that you will not believe, just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the, in the belly of the, of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. It's a... It's a prediction of his, of his burial. And I would say, out of all of the wonders of the cross, the burial is probably something that we focus the least on. Would, would you agree? The Apostle Paul, in 1 Corinthians 15, gives a skeletal outline of the gospel, and he notes that it has three components, not two. Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preach to you, which... Also you received, in which you stand, for I delivered to you as first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures. He was buried, there's number two. And number three, He was raised on the third day, according to the, the Scriptures. Christianity is not 
a Gentile religion. It's not something new that his followers came up with. It's not even something that, that, that Jesus came up with from the moment that he came on the earth. This is something that's been foretold since the book of Genesis all along. And I would say that when we think about what Christ did for us, we think about his crucifixion and his resurrection. We think that they're the most important, but that, that's not the case. Think about it. You don't hear a lot of sermons on the burial of Jesus, do you? We sing about the old rugged cross and He lives, He lives. But you don't hear a lot of songs about the burial. There's a hill far away sounds a lot better than in a grave close by, right? I mean, they're wonderful songs. I, I love singing the old rugged cross. I love singing He lives, He lives. And yet the burial of Jesus is one of the three truths Paul says is of first importance. It's, it's the ground on which you stand. It's vital. It's part of the, part of the gospel's work. Without the cross of Jesus, you have, you have no hope up to death. Without the, the resurrection of Jesus, you have no hope after death. But, but it's what happens in the burial of Jesus that provides the link between the two. That's why it's included in the, in the Apostles' Creed, one of the, the earliest orthodox statements, which says Jesus Christ, after He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. The burial of Jesus is significant because it says, it testifies to the fact that Jesus really died. Muslims do not believe that Jesus died on the cross. They believe He went to the cross and then He ascended into heaven, but He never really died. Heretics have all kinds of theories. The swoon theory. Jesus just kind of fell asleep. He, he passed out on the cross and then His, his disciples came along and took Him and, and revived Him some way. And, and that's their explanation. And yet, unless you... You want to just throw away all of the New Testament, which most heretics do. There's, it's impossible that Jesus didn't die, as I will show you this morning. Death is, is mandatory. Death is the sentence pronounced on sinners. And death is required for atonement. And Christ's burial is a testimony to that. He took the death sentence. He made the atonement, and it is... It really happened. It confirms the wrath of God has been, has been observed. The resurrection confirms the sacrifice was accepted. God wouldn't raise a heretic from the dead, and we'll see that next week. But His death confirms that, that the wrath of God was delivered and it was fully absorbed. And, and as Jesus proclaims from the cross, it was, it was accomplished. The burial of Jesus is more than just a, a record of historical fact. It proves that He endured the curse for us. If Jesus had not died, we would have no assurance that the law's demands were, were met. And if He were not buried, we would have no assurance that He died. We'd have no foundation for believing that we are at peace with the Father. Or to say it another way, if there was any doubt that Jesus really died, there would be doubt about whether the Father meted out His full wrath on Christ. And so God makes sure that it's very clear that Jesus died through His, His burial. And in the passage that we have before us, He goes through four compelling confirmations of Jesus' death through His burial. 
Mark, if you will, kind of gives an order of service to the, to the funeral of, of Christ. And he does it by focusing on four people and their, and their actions. In verse 40, he says these, there's a group of women that looked on. He talks about the devotion of the women. In verse 43, he says, Joseph took courage. Verse 44, he says, Pilate wondered, or Pilate marveled. And then in verse 46, Jesus' body was, was buried. And so here's how this passage would be outlined. There are four confirmations to the burial of Jesus. There's the devoted women's attendance. There's Joseph's courageous request. There's Pilate's natural surprise, and I'll show you why it was natural when we get there, and then there was Jesus' noble noble burial. He wasn't cast into Gehenna or in a ditch for the dogs to eat like the Jesus seminar heretics say. Jesus was carefully laid in a tomb which no man had ever laid, and that tomb was empty on the, on the third day. And that is attested to by all of these confirmations and all of these witnesses. Let's look at the first. There's the women. These devoted women who attended the crucifixion and actually saw Jesus die. Look, if you would, at verse 40. There were some women looking on from a distance, among whom Mark names them. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James the, the Less. It would be like little James, James Jr., Joseph, and Salome, and many other women who came with him to Jerusalem. Mark identifies them, and then Mark describes their devotion. These are not just any women, these are devoted women, and you can see that by their attendance. And that is a testimony, a confirmation that Jesus actually died and was, was buried. Now Mark says in verse 40, they were looking on from a distance. They couldn't bear to watch the crucifixion up close, as gruesome as it was. But they couldn't leave either. That's how devoted they were. So they stood there at a distance, watching, taking everything in. And it's important that they were watching. And Mark names them. Probably the most recognizable is Mary Magdalene. Jesus cast a demon out of her early in His ministry. Now, I hope I don't have to say this, but I will. There's no evidence in the Bible that she was a prostitute or Jesus' girlfriend or any other nonsense that you may read on the internet. She was not in Leonardo da Vinci's The Last Supper painting. Frankly, not much uh, in the New Testament is in da Vinci's painting. It's, a, it's amazing art, but it's entirely inaccurate. They didn't, they didn't sit at a table. They didn't sit in a, in a row. And they surely didn't look like long-haired Italians from the 1400s, right? I mean, they look like Galileans. But Mary's surname is Magdalene, which indicates where she's from. She's from Magdala, which is close, close to Bethsaida. It's a fishing village in Galilee. That's where Peter originally was from, Bethsaida. And here she is, having followed Jesus all along. He also mentions Salome, who's the... Matthew 27 tells us, the wife of Zebedee. This is the mother of James and John. And she's there, important, because she's the one who petitioned Jesus to, to allow her sons to sit at the right and the left hand at the kingdom. And here she is included in a witness watching that king die. I mean, she's, she's rebuked, if you will, saying, 
Uh, she's missing the whole point of the kingdom. I want my sons to sit at the right and left hand. And here she is a witness to, to the death of, of Jesus. She wouldn't have wanted him dead. She wanted him alive, so she had no reason to lie. There are two others that are mentioned, less known, but no less important. There's a group of unnamed women that came with him up to Jerusalem. And then there's Mary, the mother of James and Joseph. The group of women are probably pilgrims that traveled with him from Galilee or that he picked up along the way through Jericho. And they're no doubt part of the exuberant crowd that was there on, on uh, at the triumphal entry. And their inclusion just simply means this is more than a small group of ladies that were Jesus inside court. This is, this is, a, this is a, a number of women testifying. We don't know a lot about Mary, the mother of, of James, but that's not Mark's point. It's the fact that her sons are mentioned. It tells us that Mark's readers would have known who they were, and so would the early church. And so you have two eyewitness sources that can corroborate the story. And these women are devoted. And they've observed his entire ministry. Look, if you would, at verse 41, how Mark describes their devotion. It says, when he was in Galilee, they used to follow him and minister to him. Mark carefully describes their devotion, and he mentions three things. He says they were with him early on. They were with him in Galilee, while he was in Galilee, when he was in Galilee. They say he followed. Mark says they followed him, and then they ministered to him. They were with him in Galilee. Now, why is that significant? When Jesus was going around preaching in Galilee, he was rejected by the religious leaders and many people that were there. All the way back to Mark chapter 3, Mark chapter 6. I mean, way before you ever get to the Passion Week, Jesus is rejected. And yet these women heard and believed all the way back in Galilee when Jesus is preaching the gospel of the kingdom. You remember Jesus draws large crowds that came for the miracles and the bread, but, but He has few true disciples. It's so shocking, so confusing to the twelve disciples that he has to teach them the parable of the soils because they didn't understand. I mean, you're doing the works of the Messiah, you are the coming one, and, and you don't have a, a, large, a large following. So few people believed. But these women believed. And that's Mark's point. I want that to describe my Christianity, don't you? He is one who hears and believes even when others do do not. He's the first to hear and first to believe. I don't want to be a bread and blessing Christian just seeking Jesus for what I can get. Do you? I want to trust early and stay to the end like these women. And I want to long to, to hear God speak. And so they did believing who Christ was and following Him along. Many people's Christianity goes no further than looking to live a happier life. And that's not real Christianity. These women were good soil, and you can see them here bearing fruit a hundredfold. Here they are at the death. They haven't forsaken. They're standing at a distance, and they're a testimony. They also followed Him, Mark says. They followed Him and ministered to Him. They followed Him, which means to follow one who proceeds, to, to walk the same road as someone else. It, it means that they're, that they're committed, they're devoted to Christ, these 
these women chose Christ like the other disciples did, the men, but they followed wherever, wherever He led. And that's what devotion is. You can trust in a moment. You can decide in a moment and then choose to undecide. <laughs> you can follow for a short period of time. But the idea of devotion, the idea of this word is that you, re- you remain that way. Devotion is ongoing faithfulness. You, you follow the one who proceeds. You walk the same road as long as they walk wherever they walk until they're done walking. You're there. That's how Mark describes these women. It's a very high honor for these women to be described this way because it's exactly what God does for us. His faithfulness is not for a moment. Did you ever think about the fact that God is devoted to you? We're commanded to be devoted to Him. But the Bible says God is devoted to us. His faithfulness is not in a moment or a short period. It's an abiding devotion. It's through all of life, under the end of life, no matter what happens, no matter what you do in your life. In fact, the very word in Hebrew for God's devotion, His covenant faithfulness, is hesed, and there's not an exact English equivalent. It's translated mercy or loyal love or faithfulness, and it means God's divine devotion to a sinner, which is based entirely on Him and and nothing about you. Just as the Bible says, we love Him because He first loved us, and that love, that devotion, moves us to, to action. You want to be a devoted follower, not a momentary decider. One is fickle, the other is real. And because it was real, these women ministered to Him. That's what else He says. He, he says they follow Him, they used to follow Him, and they ministered to Him in, in Galilee. That's what it says in verse 41. That means they supported Jesus materially. And here they are at His side at the end. They were, they were early believers, they were faithful followers, and their treasures re- revealed their, their heart. They supported Jesus on the itinerant ministry that, that He had. They fed Him. They, they gave money to, to Christ and to the disciples in order to be able to accomplish the, the work of the, of the kingdom. Jesus said, birds have nests and foxes have holes, but the Son of Man has no way to lay His head. What did He mean by that? He meant He had no home base. He didn't have a temple. He didn't have a primary synagogue. He didn't have a temple. He was the temple. He had a task to preach the gospel to the kingdom, and that meant wherever he would be heard. And, and so he traveled to do that. And that's also why we're warned not to put down roots too deeply in this world, as you, as you know, because we have the same task. We, we go wherever people will hear. We, we preach and we, we proclaim. And, and the church is not this building, it's, it's you. And, and wherever you are, then the church of Jesus Christ is, and yet the church is supposed to gather to be equipped and then scatter to go proclaim the gospel. And the New Testament tells us that God sets aside the teachers who are to be provisioned by Christ's followers to, to do part of that work, 1 Corinthians 9.14. These women supported and supplied Jesus' material needs. Now think about that. Did Jesus really have any material needs? I mean, he could, he could call anything down from heaven, right? But he didn't. Why did he do that? Because he understood the benefit that it would be to them. 
God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He doesn't need your money. He really doesn't even want your money. It's not even your money. It's His or your abilities or anything else. So, so why does God, God give you the privilege to, to, to support the, the kingdom as it goes forward? Because of what it will do for you. And here, it's a proof of where your heart really is. God describes here what devotion looks like. Don't miss this. One who is one who comes even if there are few, one who follows all the way even to the end, and one who uses all they have to see his church grow and his kingdom grow. That's how he describes these women. Very, very honorable. And they're, they're confirming. They're confirmation. Let's look at the second one. Joseph's courageous request. Verse 42. Here's the second confirmation. It said, when evening had already come, because it was the preparation day, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea came. Mark introduces us to, to somebody we've not met before. Gives us his name, tells us where he's from, even though we don't exactly know where Arimathea is, is at. The other details are, are way more important. What he describes next. He says he was a prominent member of the council in verse 43. He was someone who was waiting for the kingdom of God. He describes his confidence. And then he says he gathered up courage and went in to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. He's a Sanhedrin member. He's a Messianic Jew. He's looking for the hope of Israel. And he had to gather up courage to, to go into Pilate to ask for the, for the body. Joseph was a member of the Sanhedrin, one of the, the 70 members plus one of, the, of Israel's Supreme Court. Now, we don't know whether he was a priest, whether he was an elder, whether he was a scribe. What we do know is he was a disciple of Jesus. And John says he was a disciple of Jesus in secret. And so here is the moment in which he comes out as a, as a true public follower of Christ. And John says that he was a secret disciple out of fear of the Jews. Fear of, no doubt, the others in the Sanhedrin. Luke says that he did not consent to their action, meaning he was not there whenever the whole council voted to condemn Jesus. He's a prominent Jew. He was also somebody who was looking for the kingdom of God. He was waiting for the kingdom of God. Verse 43. That means he was looking for the fulfillment of Israel's messianic hope. He believed Isaiah 53. He was looking for the Messiah. He was an Old Testament believer. Believers in the Old Testament were saved by faith, and they looked by faith looked toward the cross, the one that was coming. He was looking for that. Believers in the New Testament are also saved by faith. We look back to what happened on the cross, both by faith, both by grace both in Christ. Joseph was a true Israelite. Like, like Simeon and Anna, he's introduced at the, first, at, at the birth of Jesus, the birth of Jesus, where he's brought to the temple to be dedicated. They're, they're the same way, looking for the Messianic hope. And then here at the death of Jesus, here's another described looking for the Messianic hope, his birth and his death. And God gave these individuals the privilege of participating. We don't know when Joseph realized that Jesus was the Messiah. But he's described as one who was waiting on the kingdom. 
and he found the king. Is that how God would describe you? Someone waiting on the kingdom of God, longing for the the kingdom of God. Is the majority of your time spent longing for things in this world? Or, Or would you say the majority of your time is actually longing for a country, a home that that... That's not yours. You're, this world's not your home. You're just passing through. Is that how you live? Do you live longing, looking forward to the kingdom? Or fixed in this world? Where your treasure is, is where your affection will be. There's where your heart will be also. And Joseph's faith, looking forward, produces Courage. It's the third thing that Mark describes. He describes this courageous act of asking for the body of Jesus. Look at verse the end of verse 43 again. He gathered up courage and he went in before Pilate. It, it, it's exactly what it, what it sounds like. It literally means to gather up your courage like a loose garment. Have you ever uh, went in the bathroom or in your, your children's room or wherever and gathered up a big pile of laundry? And you're trying to keep it all together so the socks don't fall out of the out of the bottom, and then one of them does. That's the idea here. You gather. He's gather. He had to gather up his courage. This is a big deal. This is a massive risk. Now you really have to grasp. You have to see this from a Roman and Jewish perspective to grasp what's going on. Remember, both of those groups have a have a part in executing Jesus. From a Roman perspective, Jesus is a condemned insurrectionist. He's a, he's a man that is condemned for challenging Caesar. And the execution didn't end his condemnation. It didn't stop whenever he died. Roman law dictated if you were condemned, if you were a condemned criminal, you lost all rights. They, they didn't put you, you know, with uh, direct TV and tennis courts and whatever else like we do today. Someone convicted and condemned included no rights to burial. You forfeited all your property and you were forbidden burial. The release of a corpse whenever it could be taken down depended solely on the, the person who condemned you, on the magistrate. And bodies were only given to immediate family or followers of a leader. And the only time they would not release a body is if it was for the crime of high treason, which is exactly what Jesus was condemned for by Roman law. He was condemned by high treason, and so he had no right to expect the body. He was not an immediate family member. He had to say that he was a follower to request that. And that's what's happening when Joseph goes to to Pilate. It's a daring move because it amounted to a confession before the Romans that he was a follower of someone who was condemned for, for treason. He's not a family member. He's saying, I was his disciple. He's confessing he's a follower of someone condemned by by Rome, and that opened him up for arrest himself. I mean, think about it. It would be like, I don't know, walking up to a U.S. counterintelligence officer telling them that you're, you're a disciple of Osama bin Laden. I, I mean, whatever you can think of that would give you the ability to grasp. This is not just like, hey, would you give me the body of Jesus? 
it took courage because he went to Pilate and he put himself at risk. But I think even more so because of what John 19 tells us. Mark doesn't tell us this, but, but when, when Joseph goes into Pilate, the Sanhedrin is there with Pilate as well. Mark 19.31 says the Sanhedrin go before Pilate and they're asking him to break the legs of, of the prisoners so that they'll die quickly and be taken off the cross. It's the day before the Sabbath. It's a special Sabbath because of Passover and Deuteronomy 21 says not to leave corpses overnight to defile the land and so they want these bodies down. So the, the Sanhedrin goes and... They asked for Pilate to take a, a, an iron or metal mallet and, and smash the femurs of those who are hanging on the cross. And so they, they hang limp and they, they suffocate. They, and it would, it would bring about their death rather than taking the two or three, three days because they didn't want the land to be defiled. And as one said I read, they're, they're, they're awful selective about their defilements, right? I mean, they're, they're killing the Son of God, but they're worried about dead bodies being, you know, being there overnight, according to Deuteronomy. And while they're asking for this, as soon as they get done asking, Joseph comes in and asks for the body of Jesus. Now, now grasp the scene. Joseph gathers up his courage, goes before Pilate, who he's going to admit he's a follower... He says he's a wealthy man, he's a member of the Sanhedrin, so Pilate knows him. There's no way to, to go, you know, to go undercover again. And he goes right in the midst of his peers who, who didn't know that he was a follower. He goes right in the middle of the Sanhedrin standing in front of Pilate, and Jesus is already dead. So he doesn't know how the kingdom is going to be fulfilled with a dead king. And he walks right to the midst of them, and they're looking at him wondering, why is Joseph here? What's he doing here? And he walks up, walks up to Pilate and says, May I have the body of Jesus to bury it? Publicly sealing his fate before both of them. Now, if you thought the Sanhedrin, the, the Jewish leaders, were indignant with Jesus on the cross, what do you think that they're thinking about Joseph at this, this moment? But you know what? He didn't care. He didn't care because he loved the Lord. He gathered up his courage, and out of his love for the Lord... He stepped forward and he took risk from both Jew and Gentile. And listen, it's your love for the Lord that moves you to take risk, whether it's to go to the mission field, whether it's to, it's to, to take one job over another, whether it's to stand for Christ, whatever it is. It's your love for the Lord that moves you not to care what this world thinks or says true. When your love for Christ is full, you're willing to take mockery and ridicule. And you're willing to be identified in the crowd and say, I'm a follower. Is that the way you love? When you're on campus at work, at school, and there's a group that says everything that the world says, there's no difference between men and women, abortion is a woman's choice, Christians are bigots and homophobes, are you willing to walk right in the midst of them and say, I'm a follower of Christ? Not out of, out of arrogant boasting, but out of love for Christ and love for them. There's one more reason that, that I think that Joseph took courage and you see it's real. 
He's a secret follower when Jesus was alive. And he's an open follower after Jesus was dead. Now, does that make sense to you? Only makes sense if his faith was real. He's a secret follower when Jesus is alive. The kingdom is coming, and here's the Messiah, and now here this Messiah is dead, and he becomes a public follower at that moment. The only reason that you would do that is if you had genuine faith. Joseph doesn't come forward whenever Jesus comes in on the triumphal entry or the cleansing of the temple. He remains secret for fear of the Jews. But now after Jesus has been condemned and he is dead, he does. What does Joseph have to look forward to now? Why would Joseph come forward after he was dead? Because his faith was was real. And if you are a bread and blessing seeking Christian or somebody that approaches Christianity to make you to have a better life, you're going to be sorely disappointed. You're going to be you're going to be a, a public follower whenever there's benefits, and then you're going to forsake and run whenever the benefits are gone. And Joseph steps forward and becomes public at the very the very key moment. He comes forward either believing exactly what Jesus said that he would rise again, or believing I don't know what God will do, but this I do know Jesus Christ is the Son of God and I believe in him. Neither way. That took courageous faith. And that's exactly what faith is. It's courageous. We'll talk about this tonight in the the third session on the conscience. But faith is is not some mystical getting, you know, psyched up and super sincere whatever other description you want to give. Faith is acting based on what God's word says. There's a promise, you believe it, and you respond to that promise. Faith is your believing response to a promise of God. God's world is governed by God's Word, and His people follow His Word. And God's Word says there's a kingdom coming, and Joseph was longing for it. In this moment, he cast his, his die, takes a public stand. Joseph of Arimathea is the third person to testify that he is a believer in Christ at the crucifixion. The first one was the thief on the cross, one at his death, the Roman executioner, and now a Sanhedrin member at his burial. And all of this leads to Pilate's natural surprise. There's there's another testimony to the unique death of Jesus. Look at verse 44. It says, Pilate wondered... He didn't wonder about Joseph. He wondered about something else. He was amazed. He was astonished. What was he astonished at or about? He wondered if he was dead by this time. Pilate expects a standard death. People didn't die this quickly if you're on the cross. They typically took two or three Three days. Another testimony that Jesus didn't expire. He gave up his life at the very moment that he chose to to do so. Christ died exactly when he wanted at the right moment. And he had to die before sundown to fulfill prophecy. Joseph has to come to get the body before sundown to fulfill prophecy because he's going to be in the grave three days. 
And so Pilate, being surprised, calls for the centurion who oversaw the execution, who confirms his death. Sabbath was approaching, which begins at sundown. Jesus dies around 3 p.m. So all of this takes place in a three-hour window, probably around 4 o'clock, and it gets dark around 6. That's why it's urgent. Pilate sends for the centurion, which is not very far away. It's right outside of the city. And I'm sure there is a very awkward wait between for Joseph and the Sanhedrin while they're waiting for the centurion to come. And he comes and says, yep, he's dead for sure. And John tells us that we know this because Pilate grants the Jewish leader's request. Pilate grants the request for, the, for their legs to be broken. The Roman soldiers come along. They hit the, the femurs of the, of the two thieves on the either side of Jesus. They come to Jesus. He's already dead. So just to make sure, they pierce him with a spear. And what comes out of his side was blood and lymphatic fluid, confirming his, his death. One writer I read gave an interesting analysis. What was the cause of Jesus' death, he said. Under certain stressful circumstances, the heart can actually burst, causing blood to spill into the pericardium mixed with lymphatic fluid. And apparently that's what happened. Jesus literally willed his own heart to burst. He died of a broken heart. Psalm 69.20 says, Reproach has broken my heart, has ruptured my heart, end quote. And after ascertaining this from the centurion, he granted the body to, to Joseph. Look if you would at verse 45. And ascertaining this, he granted the body to Joseph. And he describes it in a specific way. There's a specific description. Pilate granted him the potoma, which means the corpse. It's a different word than body. It's used only when describing Someone confirmed dead. He gives Joseph the corpse of Jesus. And Pilate provides a confirmation that Jesus was truly dead. And he also provides a confirmation that he doesn't think he was guilty to begin with. The fact that he gave Joseph the body of Jesus, not being a family member, when he's been convicted of high treason, is another testimony of who Pilate thought was actually guilty here. It wasn't Jesus. He knows it's the leader's jealousy, so he releases his corpse. And there's one final confirmation. Jesus' noble burial. Look if you would at verse 46. He granted the corpse to Joseph. Joseph bought a linen cloth and took him down and wrapped him in a linen cloth and laid him in a tomb which had been hewn out of a rock, and he rolled a stone against the entrance of the, of the tomb. Here is another confirmation of the burial of Jesus. And it was noble. It was thorough. It was honorable. And it was witnessed. Do you ever think about uh, the white space in the Bible? I understand that can be different. You don't ever want to go beyond the text. So I'm not talking about adding to the Bible or having some type of sanctified imagination. 
But I'm talking about actually thinking about what these words say and, and what it means in the lives of the people that, it, that it's describing. It says, Joseph bought a linen cloth, took him down. Joseph had to go somewhere to buy the cloth. And Joseph had to take Christ off of the cross. He went to the crucifixion site. Joseph is a rich man. He probably has servants. He has to lower the cross to the ground. You remember how they, 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 they laid them on the ground and nailed them on the cross beam and then they took the forks and picked them up and, and put them in the, in the notch there. It's high cross because they have to, we know that he has to take the reed to offer him the, the, the sour wine. Well, the Romans aren't going to take the body down. Joseph himself has to go figure out some way how to climb up to, to wherever the bar was. He has to lower the cross to the ground. He has to pull the feet of Christ off of the nails. He has to, he has to pull his wrists off of, the, off of the nails. And he does this very carefully. He has to straighten out the contorted body of his own Lord. He had to get his hands undone. But he treats Christ with the utmost care. After that, he would have gotten him to a burial site where he would have washed his body, washed all the blood off. The burial would have been thorough, meaning according to Jewish custom. John tells us it was according to Jewish custom. The body would have been washed. His eyes would have been closed. His mouth would have been closed. His hair would have been trimmed if it was out of place. The body would have been wrapped and bound in, in strips of cloth. Spices would have been placed inside. John tells us Nicodemus, another closet believer, helps with a with hundred pounds of, of spices that would have been placed inside the linen shroud. His burial was honorable. After cleaning and wrapping him, he laid him in a tomb that no one had ever used. It was a rich man's tomb. Just as Isaiah 53 declares, they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man's tomb, although he had done no violence, neither was there any deceit in his mouth. And they rolled a stone against the entrance to keep out grave robbers, to keep out wild animals, to keep down the stench, to allow decomposition to take place. The burial of Jesus is an exact fulfillment of prophecy. It's a supernatural event. Not a bone was broken. He was laid in a... In a in a borrowed tomb, a rich man's grave. The grave was sealed on Friday, allowing for Saturday and Sunday to be in the ground before he rose. Not to mention all the people that were involved, Joseph and Nicodemus and Pilate and the women and the soldiers. God was in control of all of them without ever hindering their free behaviors. And, and that's what makes God's absolute sovereignty amazing. And it accomplished His work. What was the work? John 19.41 says this, Now in the place where He was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid. Therefore, because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was nearby, Jesus was laid there. I tend to agree with Matthew Henry. There was a garden when this mess started, and then there's another garden here whenever it's corrected. 
in the Garden of Eden, death was enthroned by Adam's disobedience, and now in a garden beside a cross, death is defeated forever by the last Adam's obedience. Henry said, in the Garden of Eden, death and the grave first received their power, and now in the garden they are conquered, disarmed, and triumphed over forever. Hallelujah. (laughs) That's the work that Jesus accomplished. And in all of it, God ensures that there is a complete witness. And that's verse 47. Look at verse 47. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, were looking on to see where he was laid. They didn't just witness his death. They didn't just witness the cross. They, they followed Joseph and Nicodemus to the grave. So why does Mark mention these women by name to begin with in verse 40? And why does he come back to them in verse 47? Because they're witnesses to the primary events of the gospel, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. They witnessed His death in verse 40. They witnessed His burial in verse 47 here. And look, if you would, at chapter 16, verse 1. Look at the very first verse. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Salome, brought spices so that they might come and anoint Him very early in the morning. And they came to the tomb when the sun had risen and there's no one there. They witnessed His resurrection. The disciples were gone. Their John was there, but the rest are AWOL. Who's going to confirm the events? There are two secret followers who become public, and these women. It's the women that give the testimony. To all three parts of the Gospel, the first to witness the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus were these devoted women And because of their devotion, God granted them that privilege. I'm sure that in a lot of these moments, they felt helpless. They probably thought things like when they're standing back watching, they can't even get close to the cross, and they're watching from a distance. They follow at a distance to to find where He's buried. They're probably thinking, like, all we can do is stand here and watch. We, we We can't do anything. They probably felt helpless. They probably felt like they're wasting their time. But their watching is now turned into God's witness later. Don't overlook the little things. Don't ever think that they're wasted moments with God. The very thing that you might think is frustrating and a waste of time may be the very thing that God is, is, is going to use in your life or, or for His kingdom somewhere else. And they testified of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And I've testified to the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And now all of us are going to testify to the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. We're still testifying. It's true. It's true, isn't it? Jesus is the Christ. He died. He was buried. And He rose from the dead for you on the third day. I want to invite the deacons to come and we're going to conclude our service with the Lord's table. I'm going to give you a moment to prepare your hearts and maybe respond to this message this morning. I told you you shouldn't take this unless you're a believer. 
But nothing else needs to be done other than you to repent and believe for you to, to become one. You can trust Christ. And you can enter into the kingdom today. I would ask you to just bow your heads and let's prepare our hearts for this. What we do with great joy testifies to the work of Christ.